Thanks to David and thanks to the praise team for leading us in the first part of our service together tonight. And as he has indicated, we, what we do is we share some time in God's Word, then we'll sing, and then we're going to take a few minutes break whereby we get a chance to either put some questions on the board that maybe you've been thinking over as I've been preaching tonight, and then also we get a chance to reflect on a few questions together that will maybe lead us on to applying God's truth into each of our lives together this evening, just like the young people do on any Sunday night in Encounter. So yeah, Hebrews chapter 11, let's just read verse 7 again as we get started. Hebrews 11 verse 7 tells us, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. In August 2019, a young 15-year-old lad from the West Country in England wearing a football shirt and a bucket hat, shot the fame on social media when he was brought on the stage at Glastonbury Festival by the London rapper known simply as Dave. The 15-year-old was known as Alex Mann, was asked to rap the verse that's usually sung by AJ Tracy and relates to the Brazilian footballer Thiago Silva. Alex's five minutes of fame was so successful, rapping without missing a beat, that he landed his own debut single and a modeling career with a high street store. Here was a fellow who was ready to rap, prepared to sing at the drop of a bucket hat. He hadn't planned on doing it, but when his moment came, all those days singing in front of the mirror in his bedroom suddenly launched him into stardom. Many of us prepare for things, sometimes better than others. The umbrella in the backseat of the car, the winter tires on. JB, you owe me a few pounds for that one. The extra hour of revision before an exam. The mobile phone charger when heading off for the day. The passport sitting beside the suitcases for the early morning flight. All of those things are signs of preparation and they make sense. But they all speak of us picturing something before it actually happens. The tricky question on that test that needs the extra going over. Those travel documents at hand because you know you will be asked for them at check-in. And we all know that our phones have a habit of battery running low when we need it the most. We've all been there. And we aren't in those situations, but we visualize them. We think about them. We think ourselves into them and what lies ahead so we're prepared for them. That's exactly what this next section of faith book in Hebrews 11 tells us of a man who was preparing for something for 120 years. Hebrews 11 verse 7 introduces us to Noah as he prepared for the devastating worldwide flood that's outlined more fully for us in Genesis chapter 6 to 8. I wonder if I was to ask you tonight, what are the first three things that come to mind when you hear the name Noah? Go on. Tell me, humor me. What are the first three things that come to your mind when you hear the name Noah? Go on. Ark. What? Animals. Flood. Rain. Storm. Rainbow. I had ark, animals, rainbow. So you added to my list. But sadly, oh so sadly, we have reduced this story to a nursery rhyme type cuddly figures 
painted playgroup walls and Mr. Noah into the Bible's equivalent of Dr. Doolittle? No. What do we see painted in bold colors in Genesis 6 to 8? Not some nice colors on a child's wall, but rather God's judgment as he deals with sinful humanity who refused to accept his gracious offer of salvation. Many a child has suddenly stumbled into that whenever they've seen their bedroom wall painted with those bright colors and then they actually read the story as described in the Bible. Why is the judgment of the world in my wall, Daddy? But at the center of this story is one man who lived by faith. As tonight, first of all, we see Noah prepared for an unseen flood. Noah prepared for an unseen flood. That's our first point tonight. Noah prepared for an unseen flood. Have a look at the first part of verse 7 there. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Noah prepared for an unseen flood. Unseenness is the dominant theme of Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham, he heads towards a city that was not to be seen. Moses travels towards a country that is not yet seen. Even in the very first verse that David spoke on a couple of weeks ago, our faith is in a God that we cannot see. The characters with faith that God commends in this chapter are those who prepare for things that they cannot yet see. For all of us, it is believing in a God that we cannot see. We're sitting here tonight, we've just sung praises, we've prayed to a God we cannot see. What Noah did in his lifetime was an act of obedient faith. He gave his entire life over to the risk and task of preparing for this flood. But why did a farmer from the ancient Near East, living hundreds of miles from the coastline, start building a boat? I mean, Noah would never have seen a boat before. Genuinely, he would never have seen a boat before in his life. Never mind know how to build one. So why did he build it? And the answer can only be the second half of this first point, because he believed in the words of an unseen God. If you've still got your Bible open there, flick with me back to Genesis 6, verses 11 to 15, and this is explained for us. Genesis 6, 11 to 15. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. You see, God outlines in those verses what is going to happen and why it's going to happen. The flood is God's judgment on a corrupted world, and God speaks directly to Noah, outlining to him how he will be saved in the storm of God's judgment. Therefore, Noah spent the rest of his days, every day for the rest of his days, preparing for this flood. His life is shaped entirely by the words he received from God. Did you hear that? His life is shaped entirely by the words he receives from God. God's voice leads him to action. Not just on a dramatic one-off response, but a daily, 
weekly, monthly response for 120 years, staking everything on what God has said to him. Last time we read together, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. But here we read that Noah worked for God for 120 years. Look at Hebrews 11 verse 7 again, what it actually says. Noah, when warned about things not seen, not seen in holy fear, built an ark. There's a, what I would call a dynamic certainty. Because God had said it, it changed his life forever. God said it, so it changed how Noah lived forever. Once he heard this from God, he was never the same again. He believed God, and this word received from God changed his life before God. It shaped how he worked and what he worked at. In hearing, he responded. And in this, we're back to asking the same question that we've kept asking during this series. What does true faith look like? What does true faith look like? Well, again, true faith is active. It's never passive. The Bible never separates the two things, faith and action. To quote John Piper, he described it like this. Many Christians think that saving faith is a single act, asking Jesus into your heart, and that all else that happens in the Christian life is just something that you add on to it, and you can take it or leave it. I say, don't fall into that mentality. Saving faith is not a single act of receiving Jesus. Saving faith receives Jesus in order to go on trusting in him throughout the rest of your life. Saving faith is a life, a life of faith. That faith is what this chapter is trying to teach us. In other words, the evidence of authentic saving faith is a faith that perseveres and presses on. If you want to know if someone is a person whose life is one of faith in the great God of heaven and they truly have saving faith, it will be seen day to day in the ongoing works that they do. It will be seen in how they live for that unseen God. You see, faith isn't just something for the head. Faith changes our hearts and then it changes what we do with our hands. I mean, let me make this really bold and blunt and clear. Let me remind you that from James chapter 2, the devil knows that God exists and rules over everything. The devil also knows that Jesus died on the cross as atonement for our sin. And the devil also knows that Jesus rose again victorious. In other words, the devil is a believer. The devil's a believer. But the devil does not rest his faith in God. He refuses to bow the knee before him and act on the truth that he knows. True faithers trust in God and what he has done and obey his word in every aspect of their lives. If you just have a head knowledge of this Jesus, you're just the same as the devil. Your faith is no different from the devil. Persevering with God when things don't seem obvious or clear to human eyes shows that we have saving faith. Noah entrusted everything to God. In fact, I would go further. It's not just an obedience here. It's more than obedience. It's a surrender. It's an utter surrender of everything. His time, his spare time, his family, his work, his energy, his words, his wood, his everything. 
because we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, God did everything, everything, just as God commanded him. Everything, just as God commanded him. Noah got ready for the day when the deluge would come, all because of his unshakable trust in God. You see, people talk about blind faith. Blind faith, some people call it today. Those who aren't believers say, oh, you have a blind faith. You don't know what you're walking into. Why do people believe in a God they cannot see? You've just got a blind faith, they say. Sometimes it has been said, in fact, Stephen, the late Stephen Hawking said, Christianity is for those who are afraid of the dark. Christians are just weak people who need something to hold on to that gives them that hope, that comfort blanket when things are difficult here. But as John Lennox the Northern Irish scholar and Christian writer responds, Christianity isn't for those who are scared of the dark. Rather, atheism is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the light. I like that. Atheism is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the light. Atheists, those who refuse to believe in a creator and a savior God, are happy to rule him out because if they accepted him, if an atheist believed in a God, it would change how they would have to live and think and work and respond. But if you rule God out, you can live how you like. Which leads me to a big question that I ask myself as much as I ask you tonight. Do we live as though God is there? Do we? Or do we live as practical atheists? Praise God as those who have the Old and New Testament to hand. We come to see that God is not an impersonal force to be reckoned with, but he is a person that we interact with, a being who speaks and serves and knows and commands and gives and forgives and rules justly and judges. A God who descends into humanity for humanity to save humanity. He's a God we can trust because he has lovingly provided his son as our Savior. Why would we not heed and respond to a God who has so mercifully reached out to us in love? Noah responded to God's word. Look at verse 7 again. And he does it while he builds the boat in holy fear or in reverent awe, some translations have it. He paid such respect to the word of God that he turned his eyes from the contemporary view of things to the reverent fear of the fact that our God not only saves, but our God can also destroy. It was a fear that didn't frighten him, but rather propelled him on his way. Aware of the awesome nature of a holy God, he wanted to please him. He lived each day as though the flood would come, and he worked on his boat willingly, with dedication, despite the opposition he faced. Here's the second thing. Noah built a visible ark. Noah built a visible ark. Now, let's remember, I think we forget this, the ark was God's idea. Noah did not suddenly come up with the idea when he was farming one day, and he thought, you know, I fancy having a boat. You know, it wasn't a hobby he picked up, and he didn't start subscribing to Boat Builders Weekly and thought, oh, I could just add this, or if I added that, and then I can get the keel, and so on. No, he wasn't even having a nosy one day at the port. 
with his Morellis in hand and dangling his feet over the edge. Now, you know what I would really love? To have my own boat. No. God said, this is how you're going to be saved. Now do it. God said, this is the design of the boat. Now build it. That's what Genesis 6 is all about. The construction of the ark. 450 feet long, 45 feet high, 75 feet wide, with a roof that tells us had an opening all around, a door at the side with three separate decks. God designed Noah's means of salvation. Now, you can imagine what it was like in the equivalent of the local coffee shops in those days with all the talk about Noah. What's your man building? An ark, he says. What's an ark? Well, looks like a big barn and stilts to me. He says it's for the water. Water, really? Where's he going to find that? Well, I don't know. It's a shame. And he used to be such a reasonable, quite a likable fella. Amazing how fanatical he's become in these last few weeks. In fact, I would say he's borderline dangerous. I actually keep my kids away from him because he keeps talking about a flood. Yeah, what a shame. Another cappuccino? Sure, why not? Did you see the match last night? As his neighbors heard his daily hammering, they thought he was bonkers. And as the ark grew inside, the ridicule turned to hatred. And friends, that's exactly where we're at today. That is exactly where we're at in this moment in history. In a society that applauds everyone's favorite TV presenter, Philip Schofield, for coming out as gay after 25 years of marriage to his wife. And he's prepared to sacrifice a loving home and two beautiful girls for a personal desire and suddenly he's hailed as a hero and everyone likes it on Facebook. That sends contrasting messages out to our young people who then, if they stand for that biblical view of marriage being between one man and one woman and the only context for sex are seen as weird and like Noah and boat builders in the desert. People begin to think we're dangerous. But folks, far from being the dangerous ones, like Noah, we offer salvation to anyone who will come. That's the second part of it. Noah built the visible ark and offered salvation to anyone who would come. In Hebrews 11, verse 7, the second half, we read, By faith he condemned the world. And in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, we read that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Whilst he was building the ark, he gave reasons for his project. He says, look, God's judgment is coming. The world is going to be flooded because of our sin. God is going to start afresh, wipe everything clean again and start anew. Why don't you come join me? It's only in here when the rain comes that you will find safety. God is offering you this opportunity to be saved. Come right in. But day after day, they refused. And as they shouted at him, Hey, Noah, where's the rain, mate? As kids hurled dirt at him, and we kids went past, and some Frank Mitchell, you are, you don't even know when it's going to rain. As others went on their way home from a drunken night out, passing him, singing, I'm singing in the rain, <laughs> Noah. Or some guys thinking they were funny borrowed life jackets and pretended to go swimming by the house one night. They ignored the offer before them, the means and the method by which they might be saved. Jesus picks up 
exactly on this. Listen to the words of Matthew 24, 38 and 39. It says this, Jesus says, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And so let me say to all of us here tonight, there is a door of salvation open to you. In Noah's day, they laughed and didn't get the boat thing and just wrote them off as crazy. What do you mean God's angry with us, Noah? What do you mean the world's coming to an end? Ach, Noah, don't bother me. Keep your preaching to yourself. But still the ark went up, and then the rain came. How horrific. How utterly horrific for all those who lived so nearby. Noah's neighbors who saw that boat built every day of their lives and heard Noah's appeal to them every day for 120 years of grace towards them. Still, they said, get stuffed. Not one of them was able to say, I wasn't warned. Friends in Union Road tonight, God gave Noah's generation 120 years to respond. How gracious was that? 120 years. How long do you have? How long do you have? Hey, I don't know. But I do know this. Eternity is an awful lot longer. And the Bible's very clear. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And most of you have heard that offer many times before. But you either say, no, I don't like the message, or the easier excuse is, no, I don't like the preacher. You respond like the people in Noah's day, you don't like Noah, and I don't want your stinking ark. Some of you are sitting here tonight thinking, I can't stand David Leach, and I hate the way he keeps talking about that cross as our only means of salvation. I wish he would shut up so we can all get on and enjoy our lives. Am I bothering you tonight? Good. I do it not because I despise you, but because I love you. I could think of 101 other things I would feel more comfortable doing tonight. I didn't come into the ministry. God called me into the ministry. I would quite happily be a primary school vice principal or headmaster by now. But no, this is what God has called me to do. This is what God's called me to do. But there you are tonight, still standing, as I warn you, and one day you will have to pay that price. Because that is what God's word says. And without God's word, I ain't got nothing to offer you tonight. If you want a self-help book, go ahead and buy a book in the bookshop tomorrow. If you want to feel good about yourself, join a charity or get to the Masonic Order. If you want entertained, well, the last show in Macarai, I think, starts in about 20 minutes. I'll even give you the money if you want to get up the road and get to one of those VIP seats. If you want company, Bryson's is open and they play some nice music down there on a Sunday night. I hear it every Sunday night as I walk home. 
most sunnies, and it looks lovely and cozy in there, and the fire's on, the fiddles are playing. So why are you in here? Why are you in here? But this is a place where I offer you life or death, heaven or hell. It's interesting, isn't it? She's looking at the next picture. Some of you will be able to straight away tell me who this character is. Poor Dr. Lee Wei Liang. He's the one in mid-December warned the Chinese authorities of the outbreak of the coronavirus. But three days later, the Chinese secret police were at his door telling him if he was to speak out against it, he'd be dead. He did speak out. And even though they didn't kill him, they kept him in their own kind of quarantine and spread vicious rumors about him. But the one of the last patients that he did see, he's an eye specialist, came to him and he noticed that this person was not well at all. And in his final words on the internet, which then he gave an interview to the Washington Times, he was able to say clearly that they had tried to stop him three or four times, but he was not for stopping. They tried, tried to close him down. If they'd listened to him in December, this virus would have been contained. But no. Hundreds are dead because they didn't listen. Folks, that's a virus. I'm talking about heaven or hell. If you want to die in your sins, it will be your choice. Your choice. One of my favorite little songs whenever I used to go to Sism, during the summertime near our house, you'll know it well. There is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a door that is open, and you may go in. A Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. The door's open, but one day it'll be closed. Will you be on the inside or the outside? Let me leave you with the last point tonight. Noah became a child of God because he believed in the righteousness of Christ. What a contrast. Swept away in the stubbornness of sin and cast into God's eternal fire of judgment or suddenly being called a child of God and finding eternal life with him. Look at the second half of verse 7. By faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah's faith, as we have seen, expressed itself in action. It truly was a saving faith for he staked his whole life, he staked his whole life on God's word. He is the first man in the Bible to be described as righteous. Read in Genesis 6 verse 9. And when we confess before God that we are not righteous, not right before God because of our sin, but trust in the God who does all things right, in doing that we receive his righteousness. Cast your eye back one chapter in Hebrews 10 verse 38 which reminds us, by my righteous one will live by faith. My righteous one will live by faith. When we live by faith, we become righteous in God's sight. And as those who are righteous in God's sight, we are adopted into his family and we become children of God. We are faithers 
we have God as our Father. And we share in that gracious privilege with Jesus Christ, his eternal Son. As Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 told us, he's the heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things. But Hebrews 11 verse 7 tells us that those whose faith and trust is in our God will be an heir of the same righteousness. What grace that we should become members of the same family. What grace that we should be bundled up in the same breath as our Savior. For we are heirs, heirs of righteousness. An heir, what's an heir? It's the favored child of a generous father, a favored child of a generous father, the one who shares in the riches of the father, the resources of his wealth, the power that comes with that name, the acceptance that comes from that family. And friends, tonight, if we live lives of obedient faith, we are engulfed in the security of our father's eternal fortune forever. We're bundled up in that fortune. We share in it forever. Our faith book status changes from being sinners in the hands of a righteous God to children in the home sharing the riches of our Father God. The Americans say, it's a no-brainer. Condemned or welcomed. Door open, door shut. Sharing in the riches or sent away. Let's take a moment of quiet as the praise team get back into place. Let's just take a moment of quiet as you reflect on these words in Hebrews 11 tonight. Asking that God would speak to our hearts before we reflect on that together at the end of our service this evening.